Uh, just really excited to be here. I knew the snow was coming, um, but I'm glad that we were able to brave the snow and, and get out here and spend some time praising and worshiping God. I'm just going to pray real quick, and then we'll just get into the scripture. Lord, just thank you again that we can come in your midst. Thank you, Lord God, that we can worship you and praise your name and celebrate, Lord God, in this uh, Christmas season. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us over the next few minutes. As I prepared for this message, it was clear that I had nothing to say, but Lord, I pray that you would say, uh, you would allow your message to be spoken today, and that you would touch our hearts, and that you would mold us and shape us, Lord God, because you are the potter and we are the clay. In Jesus' name, amen. So the Word of God is so powerful that, you know, if you read it ten times and you really meditate on the Word, every time you read it, it's going to speak to you in a different way. Um, you're probably like me, where you're reading the Scripture in this rushed, hurried manner. You know, I typically read it on the train, on this new fancy device. And, uh, you know, it's a blessing and a curse, right? Because this thing... Uh, if, you're, if you're also like me and you have ADD, it's so distracting. So I'll be reading the scripture, then I get an email alert, then I get a text message alert, then I get a Facebook alert, then I get a tweet, then I get a news alert and a weather alert. And so it just screws up my whole reading process. So I think I have to stop. I'm confessing now that I need to stop reading the scripture on my iPhone and start reading it on my, on my, in my Bible again. But... You know, when I started preparing for a message uh, in September related to the arrival of Christ, the scripture began to speak to me in this whole new way. And it began to penetrate my heart and help me to understand that, hey, this birth of Christ is not this picturesque, majestic, beautiful thing that we see in the nativity and the, this beautiful story that we see in Christmas productions. And it was exactly the opposite of that. It was humble. It was humiliating. It was this, this just down and dirty experience. And Christ was making sacrifices, not just on the cross, but 33 years before the cross, he was making sacrifices for you and I that we might have eternal life. I mean, if you look at the birth of Christ, there was no media attention. There was no paparazzi. There was no... Um, you know, there was no one waiting eagerly for the birth of Christ. It wasn't like he was born as a prince like Prince William. It wasn't like he was even born as a celebrity's child like Tom Cruise and all the nonsense of Suri and her being born and um, Angelina Jolie had children, whoopee. You know, it wasn't like that. And I guarantee you that every person in this room was born to more fanfare and more excitement than even Jesus Christ, the King and Savior of the world. When you were born, there was likely family waiting in anticipation. People were eager. You know, I remember, if I think back to when Michaela, my uh, second daughter, or Emily, my first daughter, or if you had a child, or if you know anyone that's had a child, you know the excitement. You know the anticipation. My parents are calling Every other day as we get closer, does she feel anything? Is anything about to happen? You know, siblings and family and friends. But when Christ was born, there was no one waiting. There was no one eagerly anticipating other than poor Mary who was carrying him around for nine months. And Joseph, there was no one eagerly waiting the birth of Christ. And then in these days, you know, when Michaela was born, instantaneously, 
I'm sending text messages and Facebook messages, and hundreds of people knew the height, weight, uh, everything about my child. Everybody knew, and it was a celebration, and it was so much excitement. There was none of that for Jesus Christ. There was no excitement. There was no party. There was no celebration. There was nothing. A few wise men figured out what was happening, and a few shepherds figured it out because literally an angel of God came and told them. But other than that, there was nothing. There was no excitement for the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So before we get into the birth of Christ, we have to talk a little bit about the Old Testament. And don't worry, I'm not going to take you through all, all the books and keep us here all afternoon, but we do need to start in Genesis. And if we look at Genesis, and if we start out, we see God created the heavens and the earth, and God created Adam and Eve, and there was this awesome fellowship between God and Adam and Eve. If you look at uh, Genesis 3, verse 8, it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. So we can infer that this was a regular occurrence. God was coming down to earth to hang out with Adam and Eve. I mean, think about that. Talk about the pressure that Adam and Eve must have felt. Anytime we have family or friends over, we're running around trying to clean up the house. Liz has got me vacuuming, dusting, cleaning, getting everything ready. How about pressure? I, what is Eve telling Adam God is coming. Can you please move the cows and push the lions out of the way and make some space? God is coming over for tea and crimpets or whatever it was that they ate. But God is on his way. Please get up and make some space. Clean this place up. You know, we got some fancy china the day we got married. And there has never been an occasion worthy enough to eat off those plates or to drink out of those cups. But I hope and pray, as my wife stands in the back, if God were to come, that we could finally bust out that china and use it, because that would be a worthy occasion. So this is what was happening. This was fellowship. It was beautiful. And we all know that it came to an end. The fall happens. And God banishes Adam and Eve from the garden, and everything just goes awry. And we see in, in verse 15... I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Jesus' birth was brought up, was discussed, was planned even in the Garden of Eve, even in the Garden of Eden. Jesus, God was putting in motion the plan for your salvation and my salvation right from the beginning. What an awesome thought. Thousands and thousands of years ago, God had this plan ready. If we fast forward to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, Ajay mentioned it on Friday night that God calls Abraham out of the land of Ur. He doesn't call him to become this great man like Mahatma Gandhi or Bill Gates or some other kind of great leader or great general or great warrior. He calls Abraham with a very specific purpose. He calls him to be a great nation and a nation that will bless all the people of the land. It says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
Again, we see that the foundation for Jesus' arrival is being put in motion. It was, we know that it's through the lineage of the children of Israel that Jesus Christ comes and is born into this world. Because of the fall, we know that God, God is no longer on this earth the way he was in the Garden of Eden. And for hundreds of years, he isn't here physically. He's speaking to men here and there, but he's not physically present any longer. And if we look at the book of Genesis, we know that the children of Israel were born into captivity in Egypt. We know that they're under oppression and they're suffering. And God decides that he is going to free his people and he brings them into the wilderness and he loves them so much that he wants to restore that fellowship. And that fellowship isn't like what it was with Adam and Eve, but he says, hey, I want to dwell in your midst again. I want to be physically present where you are. And so he decides to give them the, the law and the commandments. And I know oftentimes we look at the law and the commandments as this curse, or we think that, man, God was some, you know, stickler for rules and regulations and structure. But that's not what God was about. God loved his people so much. He loved you and I so much. He wanted to be in their midst, but he was a holy God. He was a pure and clean God, and, and the people were sinful, and there needed to be a mechanism by which he could come and dwell in their midst. So he gives them the law. The law is actually a gift. I know if we look at it now, it's like, man, with gifts like those, who, you know, what kind of, who wants a gift like that? But the gift was that God, the creator of heaven and earth, would come and live in their midst. And all they had to do was follow, follow a few simple rules and regulations. And so we see the commandments come into play. We see sacrifice. We see high priests. We see all this stuff come into play. But we know that eventually the Israelites just continue to fall into sin. Even though, you know, they try their best or they try, I don't know if they were trying, they weren't trying, but we see this cycle again and again. They, they begin to sin. God loves them enough that the, he allows their enemies to come and overtake them. And then, he, and then they begin to repent and cry out and, and ask for forgiveness. And then God raises up a judge or God raises up someone to come and deliver them. And this cycle happens again and again and again where they sin. God allows them to be captured. God raises up a judge. God raises up somebody to deliver them. And then finally, they're taken out of captivity. And that yet they continue to sin. All that to say that even, even in that state, God had a plan. Even in that situation, God had a plan. And he was working, even in that time, to build a better high priest, to have a better high priest, a better sacrifice, a better way for you and I. So even though this cycle happens again and again, we see that God is preparing the way for Jesus Christ. You know, I don't want to spend too much time, so let's just skip forward to the time of Christ. So when Christ actually is born, where do we find Israel? Again, in captivity. Israel is under captivity, under the rule of Rome, and they have no religious freedom. They have no uh, freedom. They, have no, uh, they don't have their own country. They don't have their own government. And they're living under the rule of Rome. And they're being oppressed 
You know, Pastor Doug started talking about it last week. They were under the rule of this tyrant named Herod. And it was only after I started really reading the scripture and studying that I realized what a tyrant this man was. You know, this is the same man that killed his own family so that he could maintain power. When he was coming up and rising up in power, he banished his own wife and his own child so that he could marry the niece of the king that was ruling in that day so that he would have a claim to the throne. You would think that would be bad enough. But then he then goes on to kill that same wife in this fit of jealousy and this fit of rage, accusing her of adultery. He then goes on to kill his mother-in-law because he thought that she was after him. He kills two of his son-in-laws, uh, brother-in-laws, because he thought that they were after the throne. He then goes to, on to kill his sons and to kill anyone that would come in his way. All this to say that this is the tyrant that the Jews are living under. You know, and he had this uh, maniacal thing where he was building up temples and building up castles and palaces and all of these different things because he was an egomaniac. This is the people that, this is how the Jews were living. So the Jews weren't thinking about a savior to save them spiritually. The Jews are on their knees day and night praying and crying, saying, God, send us a savior. Rid us of this tyrant. Kill Herod. Kill the Romans. Get us our land back. And they know, you know, they keep good history. They keep good notes. They know that God has done this time and time again. And so they're sitting with anticipation, waiting for a savior. Not to save their spiritual condition, but to save them from this tyrant. And that brings us to the birth of Christ, or what, I, what we're calling the arrival. I just want to read the scripture that Ajay had already read, just to remind us of Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration that Quirinus, uh, when Quirinus was governor of Syria. And all that went to be registered, each to his own town. And jo Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. You know, Jesus was born in this low-key podunk town of Bethlehem. He wasn't born in some big city. He wasn't born in a place where great people should be born. He wasn't born in the equivalent of New York or LA or London or Paris or, you know, Mumbai. He was born in this low-key, modest town of Bethlehem. And he wasn't born into some beautiful hospital or into some beautiful house. He was literally born into a dirty, filthy, nasty manger with cows and other farm animals. When I was on a missions trip uh, several years ago, we were ministering in uh, the northeastern part of India in, uh, amongst tribal people. 
And we were literally living in uh, huts, in huts made of dung. And so you can imagine the, the smell at night. And one day we were uh, living in these huts, and we were, I guess, living in a stable because there was a cow and a goat keeping us up half the night. And I began to think, God, Jesus, was born in this type of scenario. He was born with a cow and a goat and with smell and with dung. I mean, this was, is this the place where the Son of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords should be born? This wasn't beautiful. This wasn't picturesque. It was a huge sacrifice that Jesus was ready to make for you and I. That's where he was born. You know, when I think of our children, they're born into multi-million dollar facilities with the best medical experts. That's where he should be born. He should be born into the greatest hospital of his time or in a palace or in a mansion or somewhere, but not next to a cow and a goat and a sheep. And then I think back on, you know, how how he was born, where he was born, what happened, what transpired, what, what do our children experience, what does Jesus experience? And we have to understand that the sacrifice didn't begin on the cross. It began even as he was born into this world. And if we look a little bit further, we see that he was born not by a doctor, but he was born, I don't know who gave birth to Christ. I don't know if Mary delivered on her own. I don't know where Joseph was. If I was him, I would be curled up in the corner saying, God, you brought this child. You deliver him as well. I don't know if it was in the job description back then. Love your family. Love your children. Be prepared to give birth to your children as well. I don't know what the story was. I don't know how it transpired. I couldn't even do it. If, if Michaela, Michaela was born in a hospital, and if they could have gave me all the tools and they gave me all the, all the instructions, I could not have given birth to that child. That, I don't know what would have happened that day. But there's Joseph, I assume, being a man, rolling up his sleeves and delivering the Son of God into this world. I mean, what an, what an image. If we continue through the scripture, we see, and if we flip to Matthew, we see that he was born not into celebration, but he was born into scandal and death. It says in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. You know, at that point in time, they were not married. They were betrothed. They were engaged. There was a date that was set. But he was conceived at a time when she was not yet married. This was huge scandal. This was huge shame upon the family. I can't even imagine the stress that Mary is feeling as she goes to tell her parents and to tell Joseph, hey, by the way, I'm about to have a child. Her parents and the family and friends are all shamed. They're all, it's a disgrace. I can't imagine the gossip. I mean, the gossip today would be out of control, let alone the gossip back then. Did you hear what happened to Mary? Did you hear her story of how she was uh, conceived, she conceived this child through the Holy Spirit? 
We thought that Mary was a good, God-loving child. We thought that Mary was a good girl. I mean, she was disgraced. Her family was disgraced. So this is a time of stress. This is a time of scandal. And my man Joseph is taking some heat at this point in time. I mean, my man Joseph, I can't even imagine what his friends are whispering in his ear. Man, you got to take some action. Do you really believe that she conceived from the Holy Spirit? It says in Matthew verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 18, I, I'm sorry, not that script. Matthew chapter 1, verse 19, her husband Joseph, being a just man, un unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So he's on the path to divorce her. He doesn't want to deal with this mess. He doesn't want to deal with the scandal. He doesn't want to be associated and, and have this stigma. I mean, there is so much stress and so much tension as Christ is about to be born. Think about what's happening in Joseph's mind. You know, think about, guys, I want you to think about when you were engaged, when you asked your beautiful bride-to-be to marry you, like Sibby did last week. Of course, I have to point that out. So, Sibby, you can relate to this. Imagine that that beautiful bride-to-be comes to you a week later and tells you that she's expecting, that she's conceived from the Holy Spirit. I mean, just, just picture what is going on in your mind. First, it's heartbreak. That lasts for me for about two seconds. Then it's anger. And then it's, you know, just, I don't know what. I, I would be going nuts. Anger, confusion, heartbreak, disappointment. All these feelings, all these emotions. I mean, to, to divorce her quietly would have been the nice thing to do. He could have taken action. He could have retaliated. He could have humiliated her publicly. He could have done all these things. But God had it under control. And we see in verse 20, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, Son of David, do not fear to take Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The whole situation was a mess, but Joseph was obedient to God. I think that's what it would literally take. I would have to see an angel from heaven to, to get over that situation. But praise God that Joseph obeys God. And it's not that just that his birth was, you know, shrouded in controversy. We see that from the beginning, there is death and there is people crying out in misery. We see in verse 16, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophets Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. There was no celebration. There was no joy. When Christ was born, there was literally weeping and mourning and heartbreak 
even before he preached his first sermon, even before he healed the first lame person or did his first miracle, there were young boys being put to death. I mean, Herod, I mean, this is second nature for Herod, right? Herod is the same guy that killed his wife and his, his sons and his mother-in-law and his brother-in-law and everybody else that stood in his way. And so he didn't hesitate for a second. As soon as he heard that Jesus was on the way, he sent men to be, kill everybody and anybody he could. And I think Pastor Doug makes this great point last week, right? That Herod actually believes God. He knows that God is capable of doing this, of freeing the Jews. I mean, he's read his scripture. He knows that this has happened time and time again. And he knows that this is, you know, a 100% possibility that God would raise up someone to defeat Herod and to defeat the Romans. And so he takes the word of God very seriously. And in his arrogance, man, talk about arrogance. Hey, I believe that God's about to take me out, so I'm going to fight God. Imagine his arrogance. And so he kills all of these boys. But we know that no matter how powerful evil is, that God is greater and that Jesus Christ is born into this world. And he may have been thinking, man, I beat God. I defeated God. You know, he, he continued to rule. And if you study um, about Herod, he ruled for some more time and he died apparently this horrible death. He had disease and sickness and illness. So I feel a little bit good about that, um, but that's my own personal thing. But in any event, uh, you know, he didn't defeat God. I don't know what he died thinking, but we know the rest of this story. So what is, what, what is the main point here? My friends, this birth of our Savior, it wasn't glamorous. It wasn't this beautiful, picturesque thing that we often see at Christmas time. And we know that he began to make sacrifice for you and I, even before the cross. He healed the sick. He fed the poor. He did all of these things. But we know that it wasn't that, that wasn't what showed his love. That wasn't the first time we see his love. We see his love even as he enters this earth. And if I was Jesus, thank God I'm not. But if I was Jesus, I would have been born into this world as a prince or as, you know, I don't know, a warrior like Braveheart and died, you know, as a hero. But Jesus wasn't about any of that. He came with a singular purpose. He didn't come for glory on this world, in this world. He didn't come to lift up his own name. He didn't come to become something mighty and powerful on this earth. He came with one singular focus, to die on the cross for us. That was it. That was it. He didn't care about riches. He didn't care about making himself into this uh, powerful leader or powerful warrior. You know, he could have done so many things to make his name great. But he came because he loved us and he wanted to die for us. So what I ask as we leave this place, I ask that we continuously remind ourselves of the gospel and that we include the birth of Christ is part of that gospel story. It's not just about what he did on the cross, but he was making sacrifices even as he entered this world. You know, and that's what this story really did for me in September. When I began to read 
the scripture again and read about how he entered this world, I really began to have a new appreciation for the gospel and for the sacrifices Christ made. We know that while he was here, he fed, this, he fed the hungry, he made the lame to walk, the blind to see, the deaf to hear. He made the dumb to speak, he raised the dead, he preached the truth. We know that you know, he did many mighty miracles and wonders and ultimately we know that he dies on the cross and he dies this horrid death where he's spit on and beat up and ridiculed and mocked and kicked and bruised. We know about these sacrifices. We know that ultimately he dies on, this cro on the cross naked, alone, with nothing and with no one. We know all that, and we know it began 33 years earlier when he was born into this world. My brothers and sisters, he was born, he lived, and he died that we might have eternal life. So as we think about Christmas, let's not just think about this picturesque, beautiful scene in the manger, but let's also think about that promise that he has given you and I as children of God to reign with him now and forevermore.